so it's also worth saying I, I, I would have used the study, but I didn't want to be overcome by pain fumes. So. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tom, and my opposite number is Simon. We're two brothers who are passionate about history and want to use this podcast as a way to share our learning of the subject, one book at a time. Today, we're discussing The German Way of War by Robert Satino. Satino is an American military historian who has wrote extensively on German military history. He came to this book by way of some of his lectures on World War II, which is a subject that I'm most interested in myself. Um, and although this book does cover that period, it, it in fact covers a much wider period. So in fact, to discuss a little bit about the book before we get into it, um, this book covers a, a period of about 300 years of uh, primarily Prussian and then German uh, military history. And its main or its main thesis is that there was in fact a sort of particular style or character to um, German military doctrine, hence the name German way of war. Um, and the sort of most uh, characteristic element um, of this way of war uh, related to the operational doctrine, which was implemented and developed over that period of time. And this doctrine um, primarily focused on the importance of a so-called war of movement, so the Wegenskrieg, uh, to use the German, although that's probably mispronounced, um, which typifies this way of doing things. And this is in response to sort of key sort of strategic and logistical constraints that the German army had to work work against. So we're going to be getting more into sort of the book thesis overall, um, but uh, there are sort of a few of the main things we want to cover in this book. So firstly, sort of talking about the sort of main premise of the book as a whole, and then also focusing uh, more specifically on elements related to Model 1 and Model 2, and sort of capping off with sort of general points about what we liked and disliked about the book. Um, so yeah. Um, so it might be um, good to talk about the structure of the book overall. So Simon, um, could you talk us through the structure of the book? Yeah, sure, thank you. Um, so the book is divided into uh, basically seven chapters, which covers a 300 year period from around about the middle 17th century, right up until uh, the Battle of Moscow out um, in 1941. And um, each of the chapters is kind of deals with one specific period of that, uh, I suppose, development of, of the German way of war. So chapter one looks at um, the, the great elector and the 17th century. Chapter two focuses on um, the early Friedrichian uh, period uh, in the kind of 17th century, uh, 18th century, sorry. Um, chapter three, delves a little bit more into the wars of Frederick the Great um, and the Silesian Wars particularly. Uh, chapter four then moves on to uh, the 19th century and the Austro-Prussian and uh, Franco-Prussian Wars. And then chapter five moves on to the Schifflin Plan and uh, the First World War, both in the Western Front and the East, and covers kind of what went wrong on the West and uh, what went right on the east essentially um, then there's a chapter around um, the interwar period and the uh, I suppose recovery and um, development of the of the modern arm, uh, German army the, the army that from the second world war and finally the chapter seven focuses on um, the Second World War itself, and specifically the invasion, the Battle of France, uh, the invasion of Russia. Um, and I've forgotten the middle chapter, haven't I? The, the one about the Napoleonic Wars. But there's also a middle chapter. So <laughs> least, least interesting chapter. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, spoiler alert, we didn't enjoy that one. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, that, I mean, that's a pretty good, uh, good summary of the, the, the structure of the book overall. So it sort of works um, chronologically through um, German military history. And I think I, there's, I mean, there's probably different elements of the style of the book to discuss as well. Um, so uh, Rob Stino has a pretty engaging sort of um, 
as, as a pretty charismatic writer, I think it's fair to say, um, uh, and it, it sort of quite strongly sort of parallels his uh, ability as a speaker. If you've watched any of his lectures online, for instance, um, he's quite a engaging uh, speaker as well. So it comes across in, in this book, like he, he tends to have um, pretty readable, um, uh, so pretty readable uh, reviews of uh, the uh, books in a, in a quite sort of active tone. Yeah, and, and despite the fact that, you know, it, I, I, I don't, not, not super familiar with a lot of the early history myself, um, it's still uh, very engaging. And the, the, the battles themselves are described uh, really well and quite engaging, especially for the, the kind of book that it is, I suppose. Um, and that they give you a real sense of like the noise of, of the battle as well. And I think there's a sort of, there's a general sort of structure as well between the chapters where um, one chapter is primarily about an active conflict or sort of uh, a person that was actively involved in a, a famous conflict followed by one of the sort of great thinkers in German military doctrine. Um, it may, maybe there's not too much of that, but I mean, there's a general sort of like uh, rhythm to, to how the book is written as well. So probably makes sense to describe, to say what we're gonna cover a bit more. So um, I particularly just wanted to talk about sort of some of the general points of the book uh, to begin with, and then uh, follow on with World War One and World War Two. Um, is there anything else you'd want to cover? As well? No, I think um, I think the well, you you made some notes uh, before we recorded this, and I think the notes that you've you made are a good guide to to what we're going to talk about and what we should talk about. Uh, just to add, we want to keep it short and lively, like the uh, like the doctrine itself. Um, yeah, so I guess. The first kind of key theme of um, of the book was that there was a uh, institutionalized way of thinking about military planning um, in German, uh, well, first Prussian and then German military circles, uh, which emphasized the importance of attack um, as the principal kind of aim of um, maneuvers of battle, which sounds a little bit odd, considering that he would imagine that anyone fighting a battle would expect attack to be involved. But uh, I suppose it was specifically in contrast to other armies in Europe and other periods uh, uh, during, during the early modern and indeed modern period, who kind of emphasized defensive or maneuver-based warfare uh, rather than um, going on the offensive and trying to you know, crush the enemy in a, in, in a single battle. you want to yeah so, so so yeah so it seems like um this, this kind of operates on on several different levels so i think um although it's not really the focus of the book like strategically or in terms of like the grand strategy um that say prussia and germany has to uh, consider um given that it's in central europe and historically has had at least compared to some of its neighboring neighboring states, a relatively small uh, population base and economy, uh, meaning that it couldn't really sustain long uh, battles of attrition, uh, which kind of requires it to sort of uh, at least force a decisive outcome in, in a short space of time. Um, and that's kind of something that we see written even from uh, Frederick William I, the great elector, who coins the term short and lively, um, who's German, I can't remember at the moment. But this also comes down to the operational level as well, which is um, also uh, a, a characteristic of this, this way of thinking in that it's trying to sort of uh, force uh, an advantageous position through movement of forces in as quickly as possible. possible. So this leads to the characteristic uh, battles of containment or the, the, the Germans, the Keschelschlag, um, which typifies um, a lot of the more famous and mostly successful um, battles that have been fought over the periods that's considered in this book. And it's really that these fundamental considerations don't really change for Germany um, during this period of time, at least 
uh, within conflicts on the European continent. So it, it always has to consider throughout um, uh, throughout the uh, uh, wars with Austria, or throughout the wars, the First World War, the Second World War, etc. It has to consider that you know there is a real sort of um, a real possibility of a two two front conflict, uh, which it can't really uh, uh, sustain. And um, yeah, and th this also has other implications for. Uh, other, uh, this sort of come, comes across in different elements at the operation level and perhaps also the tactical level. Um, do, do you want to talk a bit about that as well? Yeah, so the um, one of the, the key kind of military doctrines to evolve uh, in the Prussian and then later German armies during this period was the idea of um, independent command, i.e. Um, commanders of armies, corps, divisions uh, were expected and indeed encouraged to uh, operate pretty much independently of, uh, of their larger kind of bodies uh, in the field. So there was uh, a real sense that if a commander identified a, a weak point in the, in the enemy line, they would attack that um, and then know that or trust their uh their fellow commanders to respond to that attack and to bring overwhelming force to bear on that on that single point and that kind of um something that i found interesting in in the um Cetino book is that he links that independence of command back to the kind of um prussian social structure where the Junker um elite the, noble, the nobility of Prussia were kind of quasi-feudal um, uh, ruling elite who, who kind of had quite large degree, uh, quite a large degree of authority over their, um, over their peasant farmers and their tenants. And so this kind of carried over, according to, to um, Satino, onto the battlefield where the officer corps who were invariably Junker nobility themselves regarded this kind of level of control that they had over their um, the the men under their command as part of the like uh, social contract as it as it were with the the king of Prussia and then the later Kaiser of Germany yeah yeah and that that's also I need the other sort of element um, maybe to contrast with some of the other discussions around around this sort of topic in general that's um, uh, to a certain extent, it de-emphasizes um, the uh, tactical level of um, command or, or sort of execution of operations insofar as it's not necessarily, or at least from my understanding of the book, it's not something that's particularly characteristic of uh, a quote-unquote German way of, of war. Um, and it's not really to be considered as the sort of battle-winning element. So, so one example he gives is in terms of uh, oblique attacks, which is, is, is it oblique attacks? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's what, and that's to say um, when you sort of deliberately um, uh, maneuver uh, one <clears throat> set of troops to one side of your, your army so that you're deliberately uh, introducing an imbalance in the hopes that well, this would sort of drive through a weak point in your, or basically uh, generate a, a weak point in your uh, opponent's uh, defenses. Um, but the point is that, that in comparison to some of the operational considerations is not uh, as important or as, as a meaningful sort of contribution to uh, their success as a whole. Um, and I guess, actually is there anything else you want to say about that oh i just I, I mean i agree with that that point i think um one of the things i liked about this book which you know we'll get on to later but it's worth saying now i think that he the author uh, robert tino does um explode a lot of the kind of myths of wars of this period so like the importance of the oblique attack to frederick the great is apparently one of the one of the tropes, one of the um, 
the things that is taken for granted in in military history circles that that Frederick the Great had this kind of tactical doctrine that he used to attack the enemy. And Satino argues that it was actually more to do with operational level maneuver, trying to get round onto the opponent's flank and um, and break the morale of the enemy army that way, which led to a kind of oblique attack formation, but that wasn't the the, the tactical uh, doctrine wasn't necessarily the driving factor in, in, in the decision to attack in that way. It was more to do with operational maneuver and trying to, you know, identify a weak flank on the opponent's side and, and maneuver around it. Yeah, and there's also like um, this idea that the operational um, flexibility in itself is like a key component of their victories where for instance they haven't necessarily won a significant advantage with their initial deployment of troops or through, through, through other sort of um, considerations but it's just having this flexibility uh, as opposed to saying have a highly sort of uh, centralized commands that enables them to make the most of um, a situation which may otherwise have worked against them. And I think one example comes to mind is, is the, the, the battle against the, the Austrian or the, the Austrians and the allies in the uh, Prussian-Austrian uh, conflicts where they're actually, the, the Prussians start the battle in a, in a disadvantaged position, but um, are able to sort of, basically like the, the, there's an operational flexibility that means that they, give themselves um, a bit more of a tolerance for some of the problems that invariably happen due to the noise of war and everything like that, which can uh, help them <clears throat> pull through some of these victories that maybe on paper didn't, didn't seem possible. This was the uh, the battle of Konigratz, uh, right, against, um, against the Austrians and the Saxons. Um, should we go on to the next? So one of, the, one of the other principles that sort of seems repeated, and I, I think it was kind of evidence with talk about oblique attack is the need to sort of concentrate uh, the, the concentration of forces, um, which kind of works at tactical level as well as the operational level. And you see that as a repeated element to get again, and that's kind of part of this need to sort of uh, drive a decisive advantage in as short a time as possible. Um, yeah, and, and we see that throughout throughout the history. I think perhaps the most famous recent example is uh, the invasion of the Low Countries and, and France in the, the opening stages of KCLO, I want to call it. Um, and that that was one of the sort of it's one of the most decisive elements of that uh, campaign. Um, so, but, so basically, one of the other key elements of uh, this overall doctrine is the need to uh, need for a concentration of forces on an opponent's weak point, which we kind of touched on again um, but previously, um, but this comes up again and again in the discussions of the, the battles and the campaigns uh, at a wider scale, and this kind of has um, a long-standing long precedent within the military history. Um, yeah. Uh, I also think, I mean, just an offhand remark is that like reading this this book, and I know like for a history book, it's probably not gonna like necessarily explicitly require to have evidence um, in this case, but like you, you kind of reading this and you think, well, like if, if there's no specific instance of say a, a modern era general saying like, this is like evidence of doing these things in the past and this is how I'm gonna do it. Then, then maybe it doesn't stand out, but you do actually have multiple cases. So for instance, I think he quote, quotes Guderian as referencing an, an earlier era general as, uh, as not only uh, conducting a campaign or a battle in this particular way, but also using the same language we might expect to see. Um, I mean, it's just an interesting point. I mean, it doesn't really prove it either way, but. Uh, it, 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 it does kind of demonstrate this continuity of, of thought within within the um, military, at least. Yeah, that, I mean, that was something that struck me, particularly on the um, 
chapter regarding the 19th century and the kind of Franco-Prussian War, and then the um, the following chapter, which then dealt with the lead up to and then early campaigns of World War One. Um, it really did. I, I didn't appreciate at all how um, the extent to which uh, military thinkers in in the German army at the time regarded themselves as part of a tradition. I, I kind of, I suppose, somewhat glibly assumed that they believed themselves to to be kind of, you know, uh, leading the way in in military thought and that they didn't kind of look backwards uh, to the extent that they did. So it was interesting and surprising to hear um, him quote kind of firsthand examples of, uh, like, you, like you said, the, um, the books that have uh, been published during that period that uh, very consciously refer to maneuvers and, and warfare at the time of earlier periods. End point. <laughs> In point. Uh, so maybe talk about World War One a bit. So I mean, so I, I guess it's worth saying. Um, I, I I did quite like all of the the book up to World War One. It's just I don't have a strong basis to to reference myself. Um, I I did say the Napoleonic Wars uh, chapter was probably the weakest, just because I'm not very familiar with that period of history, and also the fact that. Um, for obvious reason, reasons, the sort of discussion around the Prussian and German military kind of takes a back step, obviously because they were out of it for most of that conflict. Um, but I, I, I mean, like the, the other sort of problem I have with that chapter is that it, it mostly talks about Napoleon and also Napoleon in Russia. Um, and, um, you know, I must have missed the bit where it was the, uh, the French or Russian way of war. But uh, yeah, I, I would have. I like that to be truncated a bit because although it works as like a general sort of history of that period, it doesn't really feed into the main narrative all that much. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. So it's also worth saying, I, I, I would have used the study, but I didn't want to be overcome by paint fumes. So I do agree that the, the chapter on um, the Napoleonic Wars was probably the weakest area of the book because it, it focused well because as you say out of necessity it kind of focused on the french and russian uh, approaches to war in in that chapter rather than the the prussians they were kind of really reacting to things that were happening to them rather than um, being the driving force but i think it was an important chapter to include because if you had a a, a book that was talking about the development of um, of Prussian and German military thought um, from the 17th century up to the modern period, and missed out the Napoleonic Wars and missed out Clausewitz and um, you know the the military thinkers of the, the time. I think it would have been you know fairly difficult to um, to justify. So I can understand why that chapter was in the book. Um, I did and do agree that it was it was kind of the weakest of of all other chapters, um, but even so, I think that there were some interesting elements in in that chapter. Things that I hadn't appreciated uh, from from previous reading, uh, at least you know, at the very least how insane Blucher was. Um, but yeah, that was that was kind of a a bit revelatory, I suppose. Yeah, fair enough. I, I think it's because Blucher's a bit of a character. I, I don't really know that much about him, but I, I did recently see the um, a clip of him from the Waterloo film, the film from the seventies, I believe. Um, uh, oh, it's quite, quite. I don't know. It is quite scary. <laughs> an amazing, an amazing film, and definitely any something that that people should watch if they. Uh, if they have already seen the 1970 Waterloo film, it is it is one of it's just an incredible film. Um, it's got something like 16,000 um, extras from the Russian Soviet Army who uh, who were kind of pressed into service as French and British and Prussian for the for the film. But I digress. Yeah, no, I mean it's, it's definitely worth watching as a film. Um... 
it's on to first world war so this was really the point where everything went wrong really isn't it it's a kind of i mean there's the i suppose one of the other themes of the book are the periods of success and periods of, of failure that that characterize the development of german warfare so you, you as well as the kind of broad structure where you've got a a military thinker and then a military doer um you've also got periods of kind of expansion and um contraction as well i guess and this chapter on the first world war was very much kind of analyzing what went wrong rather than um well that's that was at least my impression of it anyway um there is a little section on the war in the on the eastern front which is kind of more um positive i suppose positive is probably the wrong word but um it, it didn't paint such a bleak picture of uh, german military command at that at that in that theater but yeah i i felt that it was it was one of the chapters that kind of tried to establish what went wrong rather than what went right yeah i, th I think it's quite because it's it's quite often that narratives around first of war are sort of couched in terms of like a general incompetence from the top down. Uh, but this kind of goes to show that th there was quite a lot of thought, like at least theoretical thought around this problem. Um, and th that, you know, it wasn't down to, what was it? It, it, you know, it's not a lot of the problems in the opening of the Western campaign for the Germans can't just be explained away in terms of incompetence. Um, and it, it, it seems like there's a combination of both the need of the speed of movement as well as the mass troops basically left their little room for maneuver that was required to actually have any success um, throughout this, or by, by use of this particular operational doctrine. And one of the sort of key elements or key differentiating elements with say the Eastern Front is the fact that there is so much space within that theater to allow for this movement of troops. Um, and so uh, consequently you see a, a greater deal of success in that theater. I mean, obviously the, the, the Germans do extract um, peace terms from the Russians, but even, even just within the sort of earlier stages of that, uh, conflicts, you do, do see a, a lot more success and, and movement into Russian territory. Um, so so I, I, I like that. And, and, and I suppose it's to, to contrast it with the Franco-Prussian War, um, which happens in 1870, um, just to show that, that it was really this combination of the mobility as well as the volume of troops required to maneuver, um, which meant you had success perhaps in in one campaign versus failure in another. Yeah, it's interesting as well because it's kind of deliberately, the book deliberately um, compares the the German maneuvers in the, the Franco-Prussian War with those in um, in the First World War and, and looks at, or kind of explodes the myth of the, the Schifflin plan. Um, but it does kind of ask the question of, as to whether or not that, that plan or the um, eventual plan that, that evolved out of that um, that paper by Shiflin, who was, I believe, the um, was he the chief of staff during the eighteen nineties? Um, yeah, I think up until I, I think he retired fairly just just before the First World War broke out. Okay, right. Yeah, so I mean, his his kind of historically, um, apparently, I mean, this is one of the reasons why we're doing this um, this podcast is to learn more about the period. And um, according to the book, um, the, uh, the German way of war, the Schifflin plan has been historically blamed for the the uh, debacle in or the debacle in. Um, on the Western Front, and for um, the the situation of stalemate that the, the the German and Allied armies found themselves in, 
but this book tries to kind of explode that myth a little bit by pointing out quite rightly that Shifflin had actually retired several years before the outbreak of hostilities. So he can't, in fairness, his plan can't take the blame for, um, for what went wrong. And additionally, I, th I think it also mentions that um, his plan was part of, of kind of more of a, a speculatory paper or article that he wrote rather than necessarily an official war plan, a battle plan. But I agree with, with you that the, um, the size of armies and the lack of maneuverability of those armies, because they were mainly comprised of infantry, meant that the war of movement on the Western Front wasn't able to happen and, and essentially ground to a halt. There's also a, a um, I was rereading re that chapter before we recorded this today, and um, there was an interesting point that he then goes on to expand on in the chapter on the Second World War that during the early maneuvers in the Namur campaign in World War I, there was a lack of reconnaissance on the German side, which meant that they weren't aware uh, of the French and British army movements, and so behaved a little bit more cautiously than they might have done had they had uh, proper reconnaissance in place, which was another factor that allowed the, the French to recover from their early defeats and the British to come up and, and support the French armies and therefore ended up in this kind of stalemate situation. Yeah, and it's also with um, Schlieffen, so I'm not sure so much if the quote-unquote Schlieffen plan was, was just theoretical, but I, I think one of the um, criticisms of that plan is it's kind of thrown together with some of the work he, he did once he retired, which was more just for his own sort of um, like own intellectual amusement, um, like like uh, investigating the can I like canonization of everything. Basically, it seems um, the can the can I papers where he basically oh, yeah. compared every major battle in history from can I onwards and asked whether it could have been a can I in other circumstances, which is just incredibly eccentric and, and amazing. Yeah, it does seem like a bit of a character. And then the other element of the Schlieffen plan was that, um, so obviously by the time the First World War broke out, he was no longer the chief of staff, it was actually uh, Molke the Younger. Um, and it seems like Molke did actually adjust the Schlieffen plan. He didn't, uh, so, so one of the key aspects of the Schlieffen plan, even in its actual implementation was the fact that there was um, an imbalance of German, German armies that were moving into Belgium and then obviously sort of pivoting into France. Um, and Molke, when it comes to actually implementing it, moved uh, one of the armies into uh, along the existing German and French border rather than having them pivot into French via uh, France via Belgium. And that was one of the criticisms levied against um, Mulcahy and what eventually led to the stalemate on the Western Front. Um, but it, it, it seems like in retrospect, or at least more sort of uh, level analysis of this problem that basically said that given the speed of movement of French troops, there's, it, it seemed like a more reasonable thing to do um, then perhaps it is sometimes presented. And I, I guess it just goes to show that um, given the state of technologies at, at the time, uh, that there isn't really there isn't really a clear route out of the stalemate that develops on the Western Front in this First World War. Yeah, I definitely agree that that was a, a key theme of the, the chapter dealing with the First World War. And um, I thought it was really well explained, actually. Um, I hadn't appreciated the the kind of wider maneuvers and the the kind of the actual thought process and and decision making that led to the to the Western Front becoming you know, um, a stalemate of trench warfare. Um, 
but it's something that the book explains really clearly, I thought, um, and does really, really well. I think it's also worth saying that kind of another, another key element of um, the German way of war as discussed in the book was um, the morale um, issue, the idea that the, the German army wanted to deliver a kind of killing blow to the morale of the enemy that were facing, they were facing to knock them out of the war. And where this happened fairly rapidly in the Franco-Prussian War, um, it wasn't, it didn't happen in the, in the opening stage of the First World War, though it was arguably quite uh, close to happening for France. And that was one of the reasons why the, um, why the First World War developed in the way that it did. And indeed, when, when we talk about the Second World War, that's another key element that he cites um, for the defeat of the German army against the Russians, that they essentially refused to be beaten. And that expected collapse of national morale didn't happen which is why it, it then dragged on to a, a war of attrition, which the Germans were unable to, to win. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. And there's also the sort of ongoing theme throughout the book as well, around sort of technological development um, over the period of time considered and how that kind of feeds into uh, perhaps not so much um, the, 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 the doctrine so much, or at least obviously the arguing for a con continuity at a certain scale, but, but it seemingly also the, the success of the execution of this uh, doctrine, because um, it, it does seem like um, at certain points in, in the history, uh, you know, that, that try as they might, that this way of doing things simply wouldn't work, or at least historically didn't work out as intended. Um, so, I mean, again, we, we kind of made this point in relation to the, the First World War, but it, it seems like, you know, g given the state of the technology and the fact that the, the, the defensive, uh, so someone on the defensive had a significant advantage over the uh, aggressor, um, it, it meant that, again, that this way of trying to force the issue probably wouldn't work out um, as, as intended. Yeah, and, and also the other thing is that, um, it, as, as the book goes on to explain that there was actually quite meaningful um, deliberation around the development of technology in the sort of late 19th, early 20th century leading up to the First World War, which is perhaps not always as appreciated as sometimes presented that um, it was kind of a, a surprise as to um, the imbalance that these sort of modern uh, weaponry introduced to the, the, the battlefield. Um, and it was only over the course of that conflict that uh, there was any serious thought put behind them. When in case, when in actuality, it seems like there was quite a lot of thought put into uh, how to fight a modern war. Um, it just perhaps wasn't necessarily had the success. I, uh, so it perhaps didn't have the success, but it was quite quite widely acknowledged leading into the conflicts that a lot of the issues that did eventually come up were in fact uh, a likely possibility. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, um, you know, as I, as I mentioned a little earlier that um, I was certainly unaware of that level of debate and level of awareness of the kind of, I suppose, the deadliness of modern uh, weapons. Um, in the early 19th century, there was that debate and it was ongoing, you know, um, in, in German military circles throughout the whole period from the turn of the 20th century to the outbreak of the First World War. But that's actually something that, now that you mentioned it, comes to mind that I didn't really consider before, which is that despite the fact that um, there was this awareness of um, the, the disadvantage that the attacker had uh, against a defender armed with modern equipment. The essential plan didn't differ in that there was, there was still an expectation that the army commanders in the opening campaigns of the First World War would attack 
and maybe that was the reason why they were more hesitant um not so much to do with uh um the lack of reconnaissance but perhaps because they were aware of the the dangers of attacking i don't, I don't know i mean it, it just seemed like uh a, something that that wasn't really covered in the book that there was this debate that was active and ongoing for at least a decade before the first world war that that stated that you know modern weapons were were too effective to enable an attack to succeed at least frontally and yet the the german offensive plan in the first world war called for aggressive attacks which were you would thought expected to fail given the given the understanding that, that had been, given the, the debate that had been had leading up to the war. Yeah, I wonder, maybe it does different. I, I don't know, actually. I, I don't recall too, too many specifics from, from the book on that point. But um, I mean, maybe it's just a case of it wasn't as well appreciated in certain circles or certain elements, or it perhaps just takes like a generation or so for, for these things to percolate through. Uh, finally, to sort of end, end this particular part of the discussion, I uh, want to talk about the section on the Second World War. Um, so obviously, I, I think I may have said this earlier, that this was the main point of interest for myself and sort of the main reason why I got to reading this book in the first place. Um, so I, I did quite like the discussion, although it wasn't, uh, it didn't really uncover anything too new for myself. I think maybe it's fair to say. Um, I guess it's quite interesting in terms of so with the Second World War, you have uh, effectively like you know a, a very two distinct halves to the conflict, at least from the German point of view, where you have you know the opening uh, opening year warriors have like resounding success. Um, and seemingly everything goes their way. And then from mid-1941 onwards, they, they seemingly can't get anything, get anything right, or at least not have the decisive knockout blows that they've been used to up to this point. Um, I mean, it doesn't really explain, I mean, although that's not the focus of the book, it doesn't really explain why, why that's the case, um, but it does talk about how again, like there's a continuity of thought. So although we think of the the Blitz Blitzkrieg, which uh, Robertino goes on to sort of want to. So although um, that there is the fact that the Blitzkrieg is uh, usually a term uh, used solely to refer to the the German sort of military doctrine within the Second World War, uh, it, this whole book has kind of been building up this this thesis that um, this war of movement is actually a continuity of. Prussian and German military doctrine throughout at least 300 years to this point. Um, and it's simply that uh, the, the introduction of the mechanized mobile warfare that has enabled the uh, Germans to do this in a slightly different way and with more, so, or at least within the opening stage of the war, with much greater success. And of course, that's by the use of the tanks and the combined warfare with the the, the new air force as well. Um, I, get, I guess for me, I, I was just going in thinking I'd, I'd really like certain kinds of questions answered. And I, I, they didn't really get answered, but I mean, that's not really anyone's, <laughs> and it was whole, um, it's not a minor reader. I guess what was quite one specific thing I would have liked to know is that given that the main thesis of this book is that this war of movement is a continuity of uh, German military thinking, uh, why it was that, uh, as he goes on to explain, uh, when planning for the invasion of the Low Countries in France, the uh, German chiefs, chiefs of staff initially present Hitler or sort of base their plans around um, a fairly sort of uncreative like frontal assault, which um, was likened quite unfavorably to the Schlieffen plan. And it sort of uh, comes down to an individual uh, general, in this case, uh, Erich von Manstein, uh, to sort of unilaterally create 
the plan that they eventually went with, which was um, a lot more dynamic and perhaps more based around, based around this uh, idea of sort of exploiting um, a, a sort of a weak point or sort of a concentration of force, uh, which of course is basically how they um, envelop the allied forces in the low countries. And so I suppose I would have liked a bit more uh, discussion around why it seems like uh, on the one hand that there is this institutionalized way of thinking, but it's perhaps not reflective of the planning that was done. Um, but I think there was also the suggestion that that may have just underlined uh, a general unwillingness uh, to uh, pursue these war, war aims in, in the German generalship, but I, I'm not too sure. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that was the the argument that was put forward. It is a good point, though, that um, the book kind of suggests that there's a, an institutional way of approaching warfare in the, the, the German army, which permeates kind of all rungs of, of the army from chief of staff down to um, individual soldiers on the ground. But at that point, when they were planning the invasion of France uh, at the beginning of, of the Second World War, um, the strategy that was adopted was, was basically the same as, as, the, as that used in the First World War, which is a frontal attack, which, you know, as you say, it was up to the initiative of one general who then suggested a, a different approach that ended up um, um, encircling the Allied army and, 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 and beating the French and the British so quickly in the opening stages of World War II. Um, yeah, it is something that I would, I would have liked explained in a lot more detail, but I think you're right that the book emphasised a kind of reluctance on the the German army's part to kind of enact the plans that were demanded of them, or the, the actions that were demanded of them, I suppose, um, at the outbreak of the, the Second World War. Yeah, there's, there's also the other side of it, which is, uh, and that, again, it goes back to this underlying theme of how the technological development over this time sort of dictates the success of uh, how this approach uh, is uh, the success that this approach to doing things has. Uh, and so in particular, when it comes to World War II, um, we have, again, this kind of on paper a bit of a paradox that uh, despite all of the success that the German army initially has within the Second World War, um, at, with respect to um, the actual uh, material that they're using, uh, it's not necessarily the absolute best in every category, it's just uh, certain elements they sort of use much better. So on paper, at least, uh, most of the German tanks are actually um, not as well equipped or not as well armored as, say, the French tanks, but um, they do a much better job of uh, actually enacting uh, this idea of sort of combined warfare. So. Um, uh, quite unlike most of the Allied tanks up to that point, uh, and even the Soviet tanks up to this point, um, the Germans are unique to actually having radio kits within all of the tanks, which uh, enables uh, a much better uh, dynamism and much more sort of coordinated um, uh, warfare between all of the arms of the uh, military, uh, as well as sort of bringing in this uh, approach of using like tactical uh, dive bombing to make sure that these sort of all the three arms of the military are sort of working together or, or the two arms. I thought the Navy was working <laughs> too much, but uh, you know what I mean. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, that's something that I found really interesting in uh, the Latin part of the book, um, the chapter that dealt with the pre-interwar period and then World War II uh, was something you know I hadn't appreciated before that the German tanks were technologically worse than uh, or, or kind of functionally worse than a lot of the enemies that they faced apart from the fact that they had radios in them which allowed you know, much better coordination um, I think there's something else that he he mentions as, as a kind of I suppose strategic advantage that they had 
over the Allies and the Soviets was that um, in the interwar period, the German army experimented with kind of combined arms divisions, which were called panzer divisions, but in actual fact were uh, a combination of tank and mechanized infantry supported by um, supported by uh, the Luftwaffe, which um, meant that the various arms of the, the army were able, the soldiers were able to support one another in the battlefield in a way that the allies uh, weren't because they had, had developed their, their tank combat units in a different way. Um, yeah, that was something that I, I hadn't appreciated before and found kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, and it also, I mean, although it's not like the main focus of the book, it perhaps be begins like a bit of discussion as to like, uh, why the, uh, the Operation Barbarossa, like the opening of the Eastern Front, happened the way it did. So, um, although it, it doesn't really, um, although it, it kind of sort of still makes the point that uh, up to the, the Battle of Moscow, um, everything was basically going to some to plan, um, or at least at, mostly as intended. Um, although that is a bit of a contentious point now. Um, it, like we see like what one of the sort of underlying considerations is that, you know, why it was that perhaps they went on to, that they, they considered like going into this conflict in the first place. And uh, although it's not really a focus of this particular book, it kind of feeds into a general narrative that perhaps um, it was at the sort of overarching belief of the German military that, um, this could actually be executed in a fairly short space of time and therefore like all of the other sort of considerations could be sort of put in the back burner uh, so to speak um and it's it kind of goes back to this like general point of that the the overarching strategy of the german military is to keep things uh, short and lively yeah there's also the the point that um satino raised around uh, Operation Barbarossa and um, specifically the, the kind of weeks leading up to the Battle of Moscow, uh, that during that period, um, one of the fundamental elements of the, the German way of war was removed in um, uh, that being the independence of command where the radio technology, which enabled tank divisions to move so smoothly together, also enabled high command to have a direct kind of line of communication to the, the commanders on the field, which meant that um, when, um, when the situation started to, to kind of unravel, the German high command started calling the shots from their headquarters in Germany. And that ended the, the the kind of independence of the commanders on the ground, which in turn led to um, operational manoeuvres that, that they probably wouldn't have made had had they been present and, and observing the action as it unfolded. That, uh, that's kind of what one of the two key elements that um, see come to a close by the end of this book, right? It's because it, it's firstly that this principle of like independence of a command sort of comes to an end due to, to this technology and also partly because of Hitler's growing sort of influence within this military sphere but then also that um I, I believe a part of the reason why he ends with the battle of Moscow is precisely because we see mostly an end to um this war of movement and towards a positional Warfare, warfare that more typified, say, the conflicts in the First World War as well. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think he ends the the chapter on the Second World War by saying that the um, the German officers' newspaper uh, mm -hmm. announced that positional warfare had begun on the Eastern Front, which was the kind of death knell of the German way of war, essentially. Um, so, yeah, I think one of the one of the notes, one of the questions that you um you had was to, to kind of ask whether or not this 
approach to warfare that the Germans developed over a kind of 300 year period, which was very successful in Central Europe and in the kind of very fairly narrow confines of Germany and France, whether it could have worked in a kind of theater as, as massive as, as Russia. And um, I mean, I certainly think he kind of answered that in the negative, um, given the way that the situation kind of played out in Barbarossa. Yeah, I, th I mean, I, I, I yeah, I, so it's, it wasn't that kind of book, but like everything points to no. I don't know if, I'm trying to think now, I don't know if this particular book makes any strong point in, in and of itself as to whether or not that could or couldn't have happened um, like differently. I don't think it does. I think one of the actually one of the strengths of the book was that it um, it didn't try to speculate too much, um, but instead kind of well, Satino himself says in the book that the the job of the historian is not to speculate on what people in the past did wrong, but understand why they did what they did. Uh, in the closing chapter, you know, if um, things had gone a little bit differently in the opening stages of the Barbarossa campaign, uh, whether the, the German army would have found itself kind of just entrenched in front of Moscow as it did. And I think to be fair to him, I don't think uh, just looking at sort of the operational side of things, it's something you could really answer definitively. It's, it's more of the sort of wider strategic sort of logistical situation, which um, would point to it being a no. And I think actually, I mean, that's, precisely one of the problems that the German military sort of face is that that they are sort of fighting with with blinders on to a certain extent uh you know and that they're seeing all of this success at some level but it's not actually leading to any sort of tangible long-term result yeah I agree I agree with that I mean I, I think that given the position of well given one of the 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 Essential premises of the book is that the position of Germany historically meant that they would have been, they were often faced by coalitions of enemies um, from from multiple fronts. The expectation that they could have achieved differently is is kind of, um, well, I don't I don't know how you could come to that that conclusion really, given you know the ways that, that these wars developed over the three hundred year period that. that um, Satino describes and they're kind of like you know as as one of your notes said they're successful in a kind of limited sense um in campaigns around Germany but they break down when Germany has to go on, on any kind of offensive in a war. Well, it's interesting. I, I didn't really think of it in those terms so it's interesting that you do say like they consistently find themselves fighting against coalitions that are often sort of uh, at least in in sort of in some sort of larger um, larger militaries or larger economists stuff like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting if they perhaps had limited more limited war, war games or war goals, it would have been kind of business as usual, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think they that seemed to be the lesson that, that Frederick learned <laughs> when he kind of you know, limited his territorial ambitions to, to Silesia and to, um, you know, overawing Saxony. It, it was kind of with the, well, seemingly with the understanding that he couldn't defend Brandenburg and Prussia against Russia, Austria and France simultaneously and potentially Sweden as well. So, yeah, the kind of idea that Germany and it, when, it, when it unified in the 19th century felt that it was capable of you know winning a, a war against winning a war of invasion against Russia and France in the first and second world war yeah there is that I, I suppose because the other aspect is that um the, the the character of the not so much the character but kind of the the, the goals of the conflict on the eastern and the western fronts are quite different as well, because um, there's always the um, I, I don't I mean not so much World War One although th this current book I'm re we're, we're reading is has kind of changed my mind on it a little bit is that th there seems to be this element of like that the the eastern front is, is kind of 
the, the goal is like a occupation of some kind, a long-term occupation, whereas the Western Front, it's more just to knock out, you know, uh, an enemy um, for just the wider strategy. I think that's a good point because they, they tried to knock France out of the war. That was the, the war aim in the First World War, to, to take the French and the British out of, mm -hmm. of the war so that they could then concentrate on the Eastern Front. And of course, that didn't happen in the First World War because they they became bogged down in, in the kind of positional warfare of, of um, the Western Front. But in the in the Second World War, they achieved the the defeat and the occupation of France, but then opened a war against Russia, knowing that or the USSR, knowing that they'd also simultaneously have to defend their territorial gains in France, which seemed unrealistic, I suppose. Intimidated, I suppose, by uh, by a military history book going into it because. Um, I have, I mean, my my interests, my historical interests are kind of more uh, ancient, um, medieval, and early modern. Um, so I've read a fair amount of military history in the past, but it's it's tended to to be around the kind of ancient period, around the early modern periods, and it's been very confusing because um, you know, the description of maneuvers and units and terrain and uh, positions is just kind of baffling sometimes. So I was a little bit nervous about going into it, but I, I was very pleasantly surprised by how clearly um, Satina wrote about the campaigns and about the maneuvers and about the, um, the various kind of uh, actions of, of each of the, the battles that he described. And it was actually, um, yeah, a, a real positive for me that it was so clearly written and so easily digestible yeah no i mean i would i mean obviously i wasn't as hesitant to read this book as after all i did suggest that um i perhaps didn't think i'd enjoy some of the earlier stuff quite so much um i mean it, it's it's consistently written in a fairly consistent uh you know engaging way uh, i mean it always differs slightly in so much as the earlier conflicts just because they are on a much smaller scale he does go into a lot of specific detail about this describing the actual battles versus later on it's it's a bit more high level um i suppose i i didn't i, I did i did quite like the the the, the 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 descriptions of the battles although they were i suppose it's kind of the point they were quite confusing anyway um and then you quite often come away thinking you know like no one could have survived this or that but oh, lo and behold there are you know uh non-fatal casualties or like prisoners and yeah it, it, it perhaps doesn't make all that much sense but I'm, I'm sure there's something to it um but yeah no I, I would recommend this book to maybe not someone coming to it with a specific sort of conflict in mind but perhaps just a general interest in sort of German history or military history um I, I mean my, my only sort of uh, negatives are simply the, the things that it didn't cover or didn't cover in a great level of detail, which is perhaps, well, it's certainly not a criticism you can really make of, of a book of this scale. Um, and thankfully he has written quite extensively on the on all of the uh, German conflicts in World War II from 1942 onwards. So I have that to look forward to at some point as well. <laughs> um, the next book on the list uh, was my choice, which is, uh, Ring of Steel, Germany and Austria-Hungary at War from 1914 to 1918 by Alexander Watson. Um, I've been meaning to read this book for a long time. It's been sat on my shelf for a couple of years. Um, but it's basically a history of the First World War from the perspective of um, Austria-Hungary and Germany, and specifically the individual citizens, the people involved in the uh, in the war effort and in fighting and, and on the home front and, and all of that, which um, I'm certainly completely ignorant of from the from the uh, central powers perspective. So it would be an interesting one, I think. Yeah, I, th I think we've actually both made a start on it and I'm quite enjoying it so far. Um, yeah, it's been quite good. It's also quite handy that there is an ebook version as well, which makes reading it a bit less of a pain for me at least. Um, 
yeah, so I'm looking forward to talking a bit about that uh, further down line. I like the smell of my old book. My <laughs> I do, my I, well, I do, I do miss miss a physical book from time to time. Um, I've, I mean, it's been sat on my shelf for two years, so it's had time to to develop right. much. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I do find it kind of find myself wanting to buy a physical book from time to time, but it always seems a bit. I think sometimes I'm quite happy when there's no electronic copy available um it, it's quite nice but uh, um thanks uh, for listening and we will return shortly with our book reviews bye